Hey, y'all. This is episode 136 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife, Stephanie Baker, and I are going to be getting into Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul's defense and confirmation of the gospel. We'll also be talking about how we can do the same. So I pray that you are blessed by this episode. Quick update on the Dusk and Dawn album that I've been recording. 10 of the 13 songs are completely done, and the 11th song has begun the mixing phase. So thank y'all so much for your prayers. Please keep on praying for that process. It looks like the end of October is the target date right now. I believe it's like the 28th or something like that. But yeah, be on the lookout for that. I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK. So you can find all of our content on the Omega Frequency Live channel. So please go check that out. You can find all of my content personally, uh, links to all of that at philsbaker.com. So check out the show notes for links to all of those things as well. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 136. So what I want to do, just to give a little bit of context, uh, we'll start in verse 3, and we'll read 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 1. And so Paul writes, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So that's our passage for today. And uh, the the main question that I want to start with is why does Paul say that it is only right for him to feel that the good work that Jesus began in them, he will bring to completion? Uh, Normally, we would think, you know, God's going to bring it to completion because he, um, you know, no one can snatch us out of Jesus's hand or as Paul would say in Romans uh, Romans 8, you know, nothing in life or death can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But that's not what Paul appeals to in this passage. That's not why he says he's confident that the good work that, um, that God began in them, he will bring to completion. He gives kind of a what would seem like a pretty weird justification for those feelings. And so we're going to, we're going to get into that. Okay. So to, to answer that question, like we do, we're just going to kind of go like word by word almost. And by the end, I think we'll have a good understanding of where Paul is coming from. Yeah. Hit that like folks. That's right, (laughs) Andrew. That's awesome, man. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, buddy. All right, so let's let's start in verse 7. It says, For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, that the good work that God began in them, he'll bring to completion. 
It's only right for me to feel this way because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. So here we go. Let's start with that verb, or sorry, that word right. It's only right in God's eyes. What that word right means is to to see things God's way, righteously, justly. It's only just for him to see that way because he's seeing it. Yeah, yeah, correct. It is the correct view because it's God's view. It's what God deems right or righteous here, right there, if you can see that, right in God's eyes, seeing things his way. I'm sorry. So it's only right for him to feel that way because... And he doesn't quote like a passage of scripture or something. He says, because I have you in my heart. If you can see this, he says, I have you in my heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, you can see some evidence of Paul having the Philippians in his heart earlier in the the first chapter of Philippians. Remember, starting in verse three, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So every time Paul is thinking about them, he is praying to God with gratitude, with a thankful heart, with joy because of their participation in the gospel. And we talked about how that word participation kind of meant like a partnership. And so uh, they're going through the same things that Paul's going through. They, they have that deep fellowship uh, with Paul. They're sharing this. They're sharing the same suffering. They're sharing the same grace. Um, they're just in it with him. So uh, yeah, now he says, I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are partakers of grace with me. So let's, let's talk about this. So he's been in prison um, in Philippi. If you remember that, he got thrown down in the stocks after getting uh, beaten with rods, he and Silas. Um, so they saw him in prison there, but he's also in prison now. Uh, he's in, in house arrest in Rome. This is around 60 to 61 AD. And Paul though he's basically quarantined in a sense, he is not, um, he's not depressed about that at all. He is going to work. Paul has been ministering to um, the Imperial Guard. He's been, so he, the whole Imperial Guard, or sorry, Praetorian Guard knows that, uh, knows the gospel. They may not have converted, but at least they know it. Uh, Paul has been ministering to people in Caesar's household, as we know in, uh, it writes about that in Philippians chapter four. So Paul has really been getting at it in, in his imprisonment. But he uses two words here that are really neat. He says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel, defense of the gospel. Now that word defense is a word that, um, we hear a lot in uh, Christian circles, it's apology, right? Apologia. 
And that's a reasoned defense. It's the term for making a legal defense in an ancient court. And um, so it's kind of interesting that Paul says he was making a defense for, for the gospel, and his defense was confirming the gospel, a confirmation of the gospel. If you can see here, it's what upholds um, something, what makes it sure, what validates it as a guarantee. It's almost like an oath. It's as strong, the word he uses here is basically as strong as an oath. Basically in court, um, this term confirmation would be used if, if, like if you gave an oath, it would be the end of a matter. Basically that would put to rest any kind of, of questions as to the validity of your statement. And so he's saying that his defense of the gospel made it so clear, crystal clear to the people of the truth, the veracity of the gospel message. Now, whether they accepted it or not, that's a different matter, but he made it so plain, the the defense and confirmation of the gospel. All right, now, uh, remember, we talked about that word gospel quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, how this is, um, this word gospel, it's, it's kind of a play on, well, it's, it has Hebrew roots in one sense. You see the good news for the poor that Jesus talks about in Isaiah 61 in his first message that he quotes in, uh, yeah, from uh, Luke chapter four when he's in Nazareth. But so there's an idea of good news there, but it's taken on a different feel in Rome. Uh, where Caesar would come into a city and proclaim the good news that he has come to bring peace and security through the Roman way. And uh, if you yield your allegiance to give your allegiance to Caesar, then you will have the prosperity. The good works of Rome will be brought to you and uh, will save you in a sense. But Paul is preaching a different gospel, the real gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes they make a distinction between Paul's, people will make a distinction between Paul's gospel that he preached and the gospel that Jesus preached, which was the gospel of the kingdom of God. But that's not exactly the case. You know, Paul says in Galatians chapter one, verse 11, and I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen for you. It's, uh, it's right here, starting Galatians chapter one, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about last week that the main theme of Jesus's preaching was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is used over a hundred times by Jesus. It's the main theme of his message. And sure enough, if you look at the last two verses of Acts, where Paul is in Rome, where he writes this letter to the Philippians, what was he preaching? You can see exactly the message that he was preaching, his gospel, in the last two verses of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 30, right here, Acts 28, starting in verse 30. This is the context for Philippians, at least the, uh, the place where Paul is writing from, okay? It says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom 
of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Pretty neat. Paul was teaching the kingdom of God. The same good news that Jesus was preaching throughout his his, uh, ministry. Paul is preaching. They're not two different gospels. It's one gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now let's get back into this uh, idea of apologia. All right, so the first time you see a derivative of that word apologia, apology in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 12. And it's pretty neat. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You can see this Luke chapter 12, verse 11. He says to them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your apologia, basically, in your apology, in your defense, or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Now, I just wanted to pause right here and just ask, you know, have y'all ever, have you ever experienced that? Where you're put in a situation where people are basically asking you to defend the gospel. Have you ever seen this promise from Jesus come true with you that the Holy Spirit gave you exactly what you needed to say at just the right time? Have you ever seen that to be true? Now, it's not necessarily always going to um, have the results that you would want. People aren't necessarily always going to just give their life to Jesus right then. It may, they may. They may just stand there. Um, or they may become hateful. Have you ever seen this happen where the Holy Spirit just kind of gives you exactly what you need yeah. at just the right time? Um, I mean, you guys mostly don't know me very well, but I'm a pretty... Um, Sorry, is that too far away? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty much uh, a people pleaser in a lot of ways. I try to fight against that. But um, I spent a summer in London and we worked with um, Muslims there and we built relationships with them. And um, we were trying to just find opportunities, especially, well, for, for me as a woman, I was trying to build relationships with women there. And it was great. But one of the things we would do is on Sunday afternoons, we would go to this um, Christian apologist, and um, he would kind of teach us some different things that he, uh, ways to, I guess, explain the gospel and also to kind of poke holes or to ask questions of Muslims. And um, so we kind of got a little bit of coaching on that, but um, it was, we would go then to Speaker's Corner, which if you've never experienced that, if you ever have an opportunity to go to London, it was one of the craziest but coolest things I've ever seen. So this is a place where um, the expression like getting on your soapbox actually comes from. So uh, people come and they literally will bring like a milk crate or a ladder or something and they'll stand on there and they'll just start sharing what they think about something. And it can be all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, But the guy that we trained with, he would start conversations there and he was very well known and people from the local mosque were paid to come and heckle him. And he was having a discussion, kind of talking about the Bible, explaining different things about the truth of of Scripture and different things. And the guy that was up on the stage or up on the the ladder next to him 
he was asking him questions and I, I'm not sure why, but he was struggling to kind of come up with answers or struggling to say something. And, um, God put these words in my mouth where I was like, I answer, I was able to answer and say, you know, this is what's true about this. And, um, got kind of pulled up onto the ladder, which was one of the scariest but coolest moments ever. So I got in to in front of a whole lot of people. Oh yeah. There were probably hundreds of people and most of them are men. Too, yeah. Right? It was almost all men. It yeah. was a lot of folks that just kind of wandered over. It was not people that were necessarily there to support us in any way. Um, so then they started heckling and saying, you know, ugly things about me or ugly things about the guy that was up there. But um God was giving me words to say and different things to answer. And I had a kind of similar experience a couple of weeks later where um, I guess we went, we were, there was a group of us that went and kind of me and another girl that went to kind of listen to this Muslim guy sharing his beliefs on different things. He was very hostile, very angry guy. And he talked about basically saying that he was equating America with Christianity and saying that this is not the kind of religion he wanted to be a part of. And George Bush, this, because this is when George Bush was president and he was uh, junior and not junior. What's W? W. Yeah. That's what we call him, not junior. W. W. Um, <laughs> so he was like talking bad about W and um, saying that that was Christianity. And I don't know why, but I just had this kind of like, fire inside of me that was like, but Jesus is a God of peace. And like probably 50 like large men turned around and just looked at me and they got very angry. And um, they kept saying all this about, you know, Bush or saying something bad about America. But I just kept saying, unless you want to talk about Jesus, we don't, we're not going to talk. And so that was kind of how God gave me a way out. But yeah, there's a couple of those moments in those that are very, very clear because they were some of the scariest moments. Yeah, it's kind of like they were using a straw man attacking yeah. Christianity as if George W. Bush represented Christianity. And oh. you're like, uh, no. No, we no. look at Jesus. Right. Yeah. So God gave you exactly what you need to direct the conversation right back to Jesus. Mm. Yeah, because they can destroy George W. Bush, but they ha they can't, you know, come against Jesus. So. Right. That was really good. Jewel says um, that God was faithful and she's had both outcomes, both negative and positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Hey, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, AJ, glad to see you. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us. So, uh, I, you know, we, Paul, <laughs> I was kind of stammering there, trying to get back on track. <laughs> um, so, Basically, this, this prophecy that Jesus gave in Luke 12, how they're going to bring people in front of synagogues, they're going to bring people in, they're going to bring Christians, followers of Jesus in front of rulers and authorities. Um, that came true several times in Paul's life, right? Um, he got brought before uh, the rulers and authorities in several different places in synagogues. Um, he got brought before the Sanhedrin. He got brought before Felix, Governor Felix, and he got brought before uh, King Agrippa, in, in an apology. And um, so I wanted to just kind of highlight this for a minute to look at the way Paul defends the gospel, defends and confirms the gospel in uh, his trial in, uh, before King Agrippa. And I think it'll be an encouragement to you. And the question I want to ask you to think about as I'm just going to kind of read it and then we'll discuss it. 
Paul's defense before Agrippa. Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit directs Paul to appeal to in making his defense. There are going to be two main strategies that Paul uses to defend and confirm the gospel. So let's think about it, all right? This is from Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 1. All right, it's going to start right here, all right? So Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am able to make my defense before you today, his apology before King Agrippa, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen listen to me patiently. So here he gets into it. So then, all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes a hope to attain as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is this considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So just pausing there, notice he's talking about what he did before uh, he met Christ and how passionate he was about uh, trying to wipe Christianity off the earth. How um, when they were uh, being put to death, he's casting their, his vote against them, kind of like Stephen. Um, he's trying to force people to blaspheme. Basically, you're thinking of Paul as um, torturing people to try to get them to deny Christ. You know, this guy absolutely was a terrorist uh, toward Christians. But that's not the end of the story, right? So Paul continues right here in verse 12. While so engaged in trying to round up Christians, have them deny Christ, all that. While so engaged... I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, 
For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power or dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So there are two main things that Paul um, appeals to in making his defense. The first is simply his story, his testimony of what God has done in him. And the second thing that he appeals to is the validity of the prophecies about Jesus, namely three basic prophecies. First, that the Christ would suffer, then that the Messiah would resurrect. And then lastly, that the Messiah would be a light of salvation, not just to the Jews, but also to the nations, the ethnoth, ethnos, the Gentiles, right? I think you mean you've already, you kind of went over this fast, so I don't know if you're going to address it more later on. Sure. But when you were talking about his story, um, I think that's one of the most effective things that we as Christians can do is share our story of God and his faithfulness to us and the transformation that's taken place in our own lives. Because, you know, there's a lot of things that people can say about a lot of different ways that you might want to come and share the gospel with them, but they can't really say a whole lot about, you know, the transformation that's taken place in your life. They can't take that away from you. Mm. Um, And that's something that's really like, sometimes I even encourage myself with, you know, that kind of stuff, like looking back at old journal stuff or um, just remembering like what God has done and where he has brought, brought us, you know, or brought me um, and how he's, you know, been faithful in all of that. And that's part of how I know he's good. And I know you, you were going into a lot about prophecy. Um, I think in times when there are times when I doubt my feelings, you Mm. know, and I should because our feelings lie to us a lot, but um, I think that those kind of things like that. So there is that side that's emotional, but there's also this side that's prophecy and understanding and these, these facts, these things that were predicted, Mm. you know, thousands of years ahead of time. um, And they came to fulfillment in such a way that it demonstrates, I mean, it just demonstrates how good God is at um, 
you know, how much he's taken all the details into consideration, I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of. No, that's great. Yeah. But it's like, it's engaging both sides of the brain. You know, there's that emotional side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The emotional side. And then also this one that's based in facts and understanding like, okay, I couldn't make this prophecy come true with all the money in the world and all the time in the world. I could never make this happen on my own. Mm. But God in his infinite power and infinite wisdom knew it was going to happen. And that's why it did happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, like, um, I, I don't know if you ever get nervous when you feel God calling you to, to testify, to, to bring the good news to someone. It can sometimes be scary for me, but it's cool that Paul to this King, he just starts with his story. Like this change happened in me. It's an undeniable change that happened in me. I was following Satan. I was in the dominion of Satan and Jesus brought me out. And he's able to do that because a great change happened in Jesus too. He lived and died for us, but God raised him from the dead, showing that he's a promise-keeping God that can bring life out of death. Like I was dead in my sin and God just, he changed it Mm. all for me. I remember um, a friend of ours named Patricia Mm. that uh, she came out of uh, uh, the hurricane, which one, Rita? No. Katrina? That's Katrina. Katrina. Yeah. And she came to Houston from New Orleans and she had a really bad past. Yeah. Right. And all kinds of drugs and stuff. Homelessness. Homelessness. And God brought her out of that. And Patricia did not know a whole lot of scripture. Mm. But she was one of the most powerful evangelists that I've been around. Talking to everybody she could about Jesus. And she would share her story. Mm -hmm. And it was such a powerful story. Mm. She didn't have a whole lot of scripture memorized. But she could share her story. And it's so powerful. It's if it's something that you know Paul would do. Why don't we try that too? Mm-hmm. You know, to really believe in the story that God has written in us. Because our when we're sharing our story of what Jesus has done in us, what we're really doing is sharing Jesus's story. Because mm-hmm. we're part of the nations that He has come to, right? And so, as Paul is sharing his story, the way he wraps it up is just by saying, "Look." I'm just part of the greater story. My story is only a small bit in God's greater story. Mm. And that has so much power there. Yeah. You know, it has so much power. So I just want to encourage y'all to um, believe in the power of the story that God is writing in you because you're part of his greater story. I think also um, with our story and with specifically like that example with Patricia, like she... Um, she didn't just tell her her story, which was powerful on its own. I mean, they, they there was a mission center that made like a movie. I mean, a little short video about it because it is so powerful and it was an incredible story. But that transformation guided her life and it guided her actions. And she, because of that, she lived it out. She didn't mm. just say, here's my story. You know, isn't it cool? Mm. Like she 
she brought like homeless people into her house and let them shower there and get cleaned up and fed them food. And she was making meals for homeless people every week. Yeah. Like on a regular basis because of the transformation that God did. It transformed her life and didn't just give her a cool story to tell. Not that that story wouldn't have been enough on its own. Mm. Like if she had gone on and she never did those other things, that would have still been a really neat story. But she really was like rocked by that and changed forever. Mm. And people were changed forever because of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like a confirmation, right? It's a defense and confirmation, like where you see the just undeniable power of God to change someone. It's a defense and it's this undeniable confirmation where they can't deny this change has happened and it's proving the power of, power of God. That's right, Tina. Story in action. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah, so um, Paul says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you uh, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Yeah. I just, I think it'd be good to address Jules' comment there. Yeah. Uh, I heard a preacher say today, we shouldn't worry about our story so much as, as our testimony, but it should be mostly about Jesus. I'm not sure how I feel, but I think it should be a balance. Um, I think any story that's truly transformational, hopefully at the heart of it, we understand the reason for the transformation is is Jesus. And we, we should make that pretty clear. Um, if our friend that we were referring to, if she just talked about how good she was or how good the program that she was a part of, I don't think it would have been nearly as powerful. Um, but she always pointed back to, to Jesus transforming her. Yeah, and one of the ways that Paul was sharing his earlier story is basically by saying, I was kicking against the goads. I was a follower of the dominion, you know, in the dominion of Satan. Mm-hmm. And so when he's sharing like his past, you know, sinful part of his story, um, he's basically framing it in, in a way that's showing he was against Jesus. He was opposed to Jesus. And then because of the grace of Jesus, he got brought out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God. And um, so he's framing that about Jesus while actually telling his own story. And so I think if, if we can be conscientious and mindful to approach things that way, if you're going to talk about like drug addiction or whatever you were into um, in the past, uh, like I was, um, you can frame it and that just continue to bring Jesus to, to frame it from his perspective in a sense. So I hope that helps. So um, they're partakers of grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're partakers of grace with Paul. And that's kind of interesting. You see if I can put this up there again, right here. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you on in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. That's kind of neat. This partakers of grace, again, it's kind of like... Uh, partners in the gospel. They're partakers of grace. They're, they're partners. They're, they're uh, joined in this. And this, this word, uh, sum koinonos, is kind of a derivative of koinonia also, that idea of fellowship. And so the first time um, this word uh, 
Sunkoinonos is used by Paul, I believe, is in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, but uh, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree of Christ, obviously. So this is really neat passage. They are brought in to experience the same grace the Gentiles were brought into that, that the Jews were. Um, being a part of Abraham's a spiritual lineage, um, becoming part of Israel as well. Uh, and Christ, of course, being the ultimate expression of, of Israel. So uh, another time this word partaker is used is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And I'll read that to y'all. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And it's just neat that he would say, I'm a fellow partaker in both the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the perseverance, which are in Jesus. And this is all a gift from God. You know, it seemed weird. Why would, why would John say like, or why would Paul say like, it's a, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, the partnership sharing in his sufferings. Well, that's a gift to Paul that he wants to know Christ, to become like Christ, conform like him in all things. It's, there's something powerful about suffering for the gospel where the power of God is unleashed in us. In our weakness, God is strong. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus tells a parable in, in John chapter 12 of if, if a grain of wheat falls to the earth and it remains there, it stays a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. There's something about um, suffering for the gospel that unleashes the power of God yeah. in our lives. I was just, I'm, this may fall short as an analogy, but um, I mean, obviously, Marriage points back to Jesus in a lot of ways. In suffering? Yeah, (laughs) the suffering. (laughs) No, I was just thinking like, um, you know, in in marriage, your partner is the person that goes through suffering with you, like more than probably anybody else in the world. Like they, they, they hurt when you hurt and they, they feel that. And it's, it's a gift. It's part of the relationship and it's an important part. You can't have the good, you can't have that deep intimacy unless there's that, I don't, there's that intimacy that this person is going to come to me when they're, they're hurting and I'm going to suffer with them. And that's part of the marriage commitment. I don't know. I, I think that there's, there's so much power in knowing that like when you're hurting, I'm going to be the person that you come to and you, you tell, and that there's, there's so much, I keep, I'm just, I keep rambling, no, but you're doing great. But um, yeah, that there's, that's, that's a special relationship that's reserved there or for, you know, deeply intimate relationships. And that might be a really difficult season or time that oh, yeah. you go through, but there's a grace in that, in that it like binds you together. Mm-hmm. I'm hating to, to mix metaphors, but like when soldiers go to war, mm-hmm. they, they, they bond in a way because yeah. they're going through this intense struggle. Yeah. And so even though 
There might be death. There might be um, torture. There might be all kinds of horrific things. There's a grace in that that creates a relationship that could not have developed to the degree that it does without that suffering. It's without like a that, greenhouse for a relationship. Like yeah, it causes suffering. it to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Tribulation, hardship brings out this grace, this power um, that wouldn't be there uh, otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. That is so good, Steph. Oh. You're right, BDK. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, BDK. And uh, it's a good, great illustration. Yeah, and Tina says, so true. Cro- comrades in arms, they understand that which no one else could know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, Paul says that they are partakers in grace with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And if you remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, I'm going to put this up there too. Philippians 1, 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And so they are partakers of the suffering of Christ as well. As they are defending the gospel, and confirming the gospel by not being alarmed of their opponents in any way, which gives this sign, this very clear sign uh, of either destruction for those who oppose the gospel or of salvation for those who are faithfully persevering in it. It's very interesting. When you see someone willing to die for something, it gets your attention. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so let's continue going as we're starting to like get to the next verse. (laughs) Why is Paul confident that the good work God began in them, he will bring to completion? Why is Paul confident of that? Here's another aspect to it, verse eight. Verse eight says, let me put it up on the screen right here. Uh, Yeah, Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's confident that Jesus is going to complete the work he began in them because he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And if that doesn't seem weird to you, you're probably much smarter than me because to me, that seems really weird. That seems like a very strange argument to make. Yeah, when you we were kind of reading through it together today. It, was, it never really dawned on me how uh, it almost sounds like kind of like a little woo-woo, like, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's like I, my heart, I feel it in my heart. That's what it kind of feels like, like that, you know, that's not Paul. <laughs> that's not his intention behind it is something so cheesy or whatever. <laughs> it's always, it's always deeper with him. For sure. Yeah. So let's break this this verse down, all right? Uh, it says, for God is my witness. Now that word right there is martus. God is Paul's martus. 
God is bearing witness to something very important. He's, he's witnessing something very important. And uh, yeah, in a sense, God has been all of our witnesses in a sense, like he, he has been the ultimate martyr. He is the faithful and true witness as Revelation chapter one says, bearing witness to the truth of his word. He is faithful. He will die to keep his promises, right? Revelation 1.5 from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. That's pretty cool right there. The faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's the ultimate witness of the father and the father's kingdom. And I just want to stop like and think, how can we be faithful witnesses for Christ too? How can we be like that? Um, now he says, as God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word long for, uh, epipotheo, I believe, <laughs> to long for, uh, to strain after, earnestly desire greatly. Uh, the picture that comes to my mind, honestly, um, when I think about this straining after something is... I feel like you're going to go somewhere weird with this. <laughs> no, it's not weird. Okay. So we have two dogs. One of them is new, Amos. He's little. He's like 40 pounds. And then we have our big boy, Zeke, yeah. who's like a 90-pound Airedale. He's a big guy. And if you drop something on the floor, let's say we're cooking, we're, we're preparing dinner, and Steph, like, accidentally, something falls. Yeah. What's Zeke going to do? Oh, he gets it immediately. Yeah. Now, let's say you grab him by the collar. What's he going to do? Pull my arm out of socket. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, this strong dog is just straining with all his might for that food. Yeah. He has such a desire for it. Are you going to say something? Oh, no. No, I was just thinking. When you were talking about the dogs, I was thinking of like when we take uh, the little one for a walk. And yeah. now he wants to be up with the big one. Yeah. And how hard he's straining that he's like having like a bronchospasm because yeah. he's like so tight around his throat. And yeah. He can't breathe because he wants to, to get there so quickly. But yeah. Yeah. And Dogs so teach us a lot, right? You like dog analogies. I do like dog analogies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's saying like Jesus strains for us. He's straining. Paul is straining for the Philippians with the way that Jesus strains for us. And yeah, Phil with the puppy parable. <laughs> That's right, man. I can't it's help true. myself. Uh, <laughs> so Paul is straining for them with the, with, the, with the straining that Jesus strains for us, I guess. That's, that's a terrible use of English. Um, so why is Jesus straining for us so much? Well, it's interesting. He says, I'm straining for you with the affection of Christ. Now, this is a pretty fun word, the uh, affection. It's this word right here in Strong's uh, 4698, splachnon. <laughs> you might cough up a loogie when you're saying splachnon. 
Uh, it sounds like something in Klingon or something, but it's not. It's, it's Greek. And it, it literally means like your organs. Like visceral. Yeah, it's a visceral thing, like gut-level compassion that you're feeling in your gut. Now, the, the word right before that in Strong's 4697 is splagnitsomai. Can you say that, Stephanie? Splagnitsomai. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Splagnitsomai, guys. Splagnitsomai. Now, what that means is to be like moved, to feel compassion uh, that just makes you want to do. Have you ever felt that kind of yeah. compassion for someone mm-hmm. when you see them hurting so bad that you start hurting? Yeah, I have. Can, can you give a, an example maybe? Um, I mean, I, there's been times where like seeing a homeless person has like affected me super deeply, but also like I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for years and, you know, that is an excruciating pain. It's terrible. And um, there are some pain management options out there, but there are times where that wasn't an option and you would just sit there or like a patient was in a lot of pain, but they weren't really in active labor and you just hurt with them. Like, I am so sorry. I wish there was something, anything I could do to help this situation. And it, it, it kind of tears you up inside. So. Mm. Uh, yeah. I want to look at, at uh, one passage in particular where we see this uh, splagnitzomai, this compassion um, pouring, uh, pouring out of someone. And uh, it's in Luke chapter 10. Kind of trying to bring this, bring this, starting to bring it toward a close. Um, so in Luke chapter 10, I'm going to put this up on the screen. A lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. It's in Luke 10, 25, saying, Teacher, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? So a good rabbi answers a question with a question or two questions. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And the lawyer answered, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So quoting from Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 and 5, the Shema. And then he says, and to love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19, 18. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And from what I understand, there were different debates going on uh, in that first century time, that second temple time about what it means to love your neighbor. How far does that extend? And different rabbis had different uh, explanations of what it meant to love your neighbor. Like Jesus kind of approaches that in uh, Matthew chapter five, where he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? So that's a common thing that was going around based on, I believe uh, that hate your neighbor, or sorry, hate your enemy Sorry, let me uh, do this. So no, the hate your, your 
Well, yeah, but the love uh, your neighbor, hate your enemy, the hate your enemy part was based out of a verse in Psalm 139 where it says, don't I hate those who hate you? Mm -hmm. And so they applied that to, it's okay to love your neighbors, but you can hate the enemies of God. And that was kind of getting twisted um, by certain rabbis, not all, of course, but by certain rabbis. And so there's a debate there. How far does this love your neighbor go? And so Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable to illustrate his point. And um, then he'll ask a question at the end of it. It's a familiar uh, story, but let's read it. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So a Jewish man is naked, beaten, bloody, and almost dead on the side of a road. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, not wanting to you know, become ritually unclean because then he can't do his duties for a while. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, also not wanting to become ritually unclean. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Now, when Jesus said, but a Samaritan, you might have heard a gasp in the crowd. Oh, very good with the sound effects. We should do that sometime. (laughs) Going down the stairs. AJ says uh, the the person in your church that nobody likes is your neighbor. Amen to that. Mm. Amen. And Froggy says, I'm transformed. Amen to that. Mm. Praise God. That's right. Praise God. Praise God, Froggy. Mm. So um, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and probably most Jews would think, kick some sand in his face or spit on him or something like that. Because Jews viewed Samaritans as like less than human, you know, kind of human, but not totally human. Um, Very racist beliefs going on back then Um, because they had intermarried, right? The the, um, 10 tribes of Israel after the Assyrians came in and there's that great dispersion they intermarried with with Gentiles, and some of these were the Samaritans. So they're viewed as sellouts, traitors, less than human, that they had married with Gentiles. So, so the Samaritan who's on a journey came upon him. When he saw him, he felt splagnitzomai. He felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. What did you want to say? Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you'd... No, I bumped you. Okay. (laughs) Hey, Dustin. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, buddy. If you don't listen to Empty Tomb Radio, you should. Dustin does a great job. 
Um, so this, this Samaritan goes way out of his way. He bandages up this Jewish man's wound, wounds. He gets out his medical kit, puts oil and wine on the wounds. He gets off his beast. He puts the man on his beast. He brings him to an inn and takes care of him more. And then he takes and then he takes a selfie and, and shows, says, "Look what I just did." <laughs> Real mercy. <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> hashtag. I'm no. awesome. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. <laughs> no, he he didn't he didn't do that. But on the next day, he takes out two denarii, um, two days' wage, and gives them to the innkeeper and says, "Take take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'm going to repay you." So at great cost to this man. Did he dab? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at great cost to the Samaritan, he takes care of this man that was his enemy. And Jesus says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? So Jesus doesn't say, so what does it mean to love your neighbor? Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? Mm -hmm. Now, the lawyer is having trouble with this story because this, was, this would be a very culturally shocking story to have a Samaritan be the hero. And so, verse 37, the lawyer does not even utter the word Samaritan. He can't bring himself to say it. He simply says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go then and do the same. So when we think about mercy in one sense, it's not the absence of an action. It's, it's often defined by some as uh, not getting what we deserve is mercy. And that to a degree uh, is used in the Bible for sure, but mercy and compassion extend far beyond not giving someone what they deserve. Because if that was the extent of this, then the Samaritan or the, the Jew in, in a Samaritan's eyes would deserve getting spat on, getting kicked, or just left alone and walking away, you know, not helping a guy. That would be like not giving him what he deserves. But no, mercy goes far past that. It's helping the needy, helping the helpless, helping those who need help in their time of need, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think what we need to take away from that in one sense is that we are the beaten and bloody man lying on the side of the road. We are that Jew on the side of the road, beaten, bloody, naked, wretched, half dead, without hope. We are that man. And Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, right? Because at great expense to himself, far more than gold or silver denarii, right? At great expense to himself, he takes us up into his arms, bandages our wounds. By his stripes, we are healed. Paul hits on this really well 
in Romans chapter five, starting in verse six, if you think about this, the good Samaritan, for while we were still helpless, right? Think about that man on the side of the road. While we were helpless, completely destitute, at the right time, at just the right time, Christ came. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we are his enemies, right? At great expense to himself. Jesus shows us mercy. And so uh, why does Paul say it's right for him to feel that the good work Jesus began in them, he will bring to completion? Because as Christ loves them, so does Paul. Paul is being transformed into Christ's image. So now Paul, this man who used to be an enemy of the cross, is now is now just being filled and overflowing with the same compassion that Jesus felt that led him to the cross. The compassion that Jesus felt that helped him choose the cross. Straining and urging for people like Jesus weeping over the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed you know, you stone the prophets, you know, how I've longed to gather you to myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks. You know, Jesus just straining for these people. Paul has that same compassion, that same urging, longing for them. And it's almost as if Paul is thinking, if Jesus can transform someone like me, to having the same affection for people that he has, he can change you too. If Jesus can make that great switch in my life, can transform me, he can transform you too. And I just want to leave you with um, just a couple of verses. Starting in Romans chapter five, uh, verse three, Paul says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And Paul is saying there in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit changes us more and more to have the same character as Jesus. How does he do that? One of the main ways he does that is through trials and tribulation, through hardship. The more we go through that, the more it changes our character. It's giving, it's giving us this perseverance to endure. That changes our character to become more and more like Jesus. And the more our character changes to become more and more like Jesus, the more our mind is transformed, the more hope we have. Who had more hope than Jesus? Right? 
And so the Holy Spirit changes us more and more to have the same character of, as Jesus so that we can help bear witness to the truth and the power of the gospel of the kingdom of God's, the kingdom of God. That transformation gives us hope, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. As God is pouring out his love in our hearts have that love for others, that hope for others. So how have you seen God's grace working in and through your trials to change you, to take on more of the attitude of Christ Jesus? I know this is a uh, difficult time for all of us. This is a trying time for all of us. Some of us are dealing with illness. Our family members are dealing with illness. Maybe you can't even see them. They're not allowing you in in rooms to see them. This is a scary time, a very difficult time. But how have you seen God's grace working in this and God changing you maybe little by little to help you take on more of that compassionate attitude of Christ Jesus and giving you hope? I just want to leave you with that. This one verse, um, It's one of my favorite verses in the scripture that I just want to end with. It's Romans 15, 13. Whatever situation you're in, there's hope. There's hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just trust me, you'll see Hold on to believe He came to me and told me my seed Would be the way that He'd bring hope to the world Then He took me outside and said, at the sky just like the stars your songs will fill up the earth just trust me you'll see hold on to believe So go to that mountain, worship me there You and your son who was a miracle child Give him back to his maker, son don't be scared Our God who loves the world is gonna provide Trust me, you'll see Hold on to believe You are the son of the promise of God And on His word we are standing Love 
to go